Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast for issue number 60. I'm Ian Parkinson. I'm at the Ruler offices in London, and I'm joined by Ruler managing editor Andy McGrath. Now, Ian Cleverly is just back from a few days of uh, checking out the training camps at uh, Calpi in, in Spain, swanning around effectively. And the plan uh, was for me to basically gently moan and poke fun at Ian Cleverly today for swanning around in the sunshine and sitting in hot tubs while the rest of us were suffering through a British winter. But um, uh, first of all, he's not here. Um, And secondly, we heard the horrible news from Calpie at the weekend of the crash involving the giant Alperson team. Well, what we know of the incident at the moment, and we don't know the full details, is that the riders were apparently in pairs on the correct side of the road when they were hit by a car coming in the other direction. John Degenkolb, Frederick Ludwigson, Chad Hauger, uh, Raman Sinkeldam, Warren Bargill and Max Walshide all been treated for injuries. Some of them have had surgery, a a range of injuries. Uh, Thankfully, from what we know from the team sources, none of them are life-threatening or we think long-term serious. But it's still a a horrific thing to happen and we can only wish them all the speediest of recoveries. Andy, you've been to Calpie um, a few times yourself. In fact, sort of going to the early season training camps is a bit of a routine for you. That's right, yeah. Well, I've been the ones following around. I was just in Benidorm yesterday with the Spanish Kai Rural team. It's an, now a pilgrimage place for most of the World Tour teams. It's either going to be Mallorca or Calpe. And if you're very lucky, it'll be South Africa or even Australia. And they take over hotels, basically, because... These tourist meccas become ghost towns in the, in winter, so they get really cheap prices. The hoteliers are kind of happy to have them, and they get a bit of sunshine. Um, I can't think of the last time there was a training incident of this gravity in recent years, though. But it is always a kind of occupational hazard, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, my first reaction, first of all, obviously was shock and then actually surprise because I've ridden a lot in Spain and it's always struck me as one of the safest places in Europe to be a cyclist. Actually, Spanish drivers are um, largely very uh, considerate towards riders. One of the awful things is, and again, we don't know the uh, details at all, but one of the awful things is the is the suggestion that it actually may have been a, a British driver involved, which just adds another layer of awfulness to the situation. But generally, the weekend's uh, events notwithstanding, Kelpie's a, a great place to be a cyclist. It is. It's fantastic. You've got the sea and the flatlands and the beach uh, and the iconic Rock of Kelpie. I think it's a Rock of IFAC or something like that. And every year I say uh, I'll find a morning to actually go up it and climb it. Never do, though. 
But these early season training camps are a sort of strange phenomenon, aren't they? They really have become hugely popular. With all cyclists, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that's the way it's been going in the last 10 years with low-budget airlines and even the growth slightly of the cycling media kind of promoting this. And now it's a done thing. Like, if you're a British cyclist and you're stuck riding in the lanes in the rain while your mate might be on Facebook posting photos from Lanzarote or something like that, you're the odd one out. I feel like the odd one out at the moment. Uh, one, one thing that didn't catch on, if you remember a couple of years ago, was that you know, Bjarne Rees, I think, got the Danish SAS in or something for one of his early season training camps and the riders were jumping off cliffs and swimming in freezing cold water and living in the wilderness. That never really caught on, did it? It didn't. I, I'm not sure what it did. I, I remember CSC always had some decent uh, early season results back in the day. I think Quickstep did a, an army training course about two years ago running around with uh, with guns and like going through obstacle courses blindfolded but they just kind of uh, won the same amount as they had anyway so. so you may as well just ride around in the sunshine yeah if it, if it ain't broke uh, <laughs> don't fix it issue 60 has uh, the second part of the interview with Jan Ulrich uh, the first part was in issue 59 and one of the early season rituals in, in past years was always waiting for Jan Ulrich to turn up looking like a Michelin man at the training camp <laughs> but that doesn't happen anymore does it Did, you didn't see any significantly overweight riders in, in Benidorm or Calpe there's fat and there's cyclist fat and yeah. there are some riders who put on too much weight over over the winter but even then it's nothing that would really stand out at worst you'd call them stocky with these days nutritionists and and coaches there's an even keener eye being kept on all that one of the people ian cleverly bumped into out in calpe was uh, sean kelly he was out there with chain reaction and post and i'm not sure what his role is with the team do you do you know what it what it is he's not the ds or anything is he he isn't the ds i think it's a kind of between a general manager but he's not that either and an ambassador but he's been doing it for, I think, over 10 years since the team's fledgling days. And it's nice to see him putting something back into Irish cycling. And he always seems to be there in the hotel in a tracksuit. I think he goes riding with the team sometimes and he's, he's obviously still pretty strong. As I said, Ian was uh, talking to him and he said that uh, going to somewhere like Calpe for a pre-season camp was important to teams like his. It's certainly you know, good for motivation for the riders because when you see the big teams and you have some pro tour teams here, I think the guys, when they see that, hopefully it helps you know, to, to make them realise that yeah, if you uh, work really hard, you're focused, you're 100% committed, yeah, who knows, maybe some of those guys in our team can move on uh, to Continental Pro or possibly Pro Tour. So that alone, uh, it's important you know, that the riders see that. And then, of course, yeah, the training camps are always important to get ready for the new season, get the riders to know each other. Um, and now, of course, you know, training camps, a Continental team having two training camps, one in December past, now in January. If you talk 10 years ago, something never happened, but that's yeah. the way cycling, I think, yeah, every, everything is ramping up in, in different ways. And certainly the training camps, they are one thing which, has been, which are ramping up because even club teams are coming out to the sunshine and to do some good miles and some good training. How many years has the team been running now? Well, it all started uh, with, with the academy. We had the, the Sean Kelly Academy House in Belgium, which was... Uh, uh, set up by uh, Cycling Ireland. They wanted to have a, um, uh, a house uh, somewhere in Europe 
like the Australians have been doing for many years, and they had a place in Italy. So Cycling decided that they wanted to do that. They approached me. They were talking about France, and I said, well, France is a big country. Travel to races, it takes a long time. It's a big cost. Go to Belgium. You have so many races for all levels. Uh, and they decided to set up house in Belgium, and it started from there. We had the academy, which was going uh, very well for a number of years. And then Colt decided that he wanted to do a continental team for the Irish riders who were at a level that needed to race more out of Belgium and to go to France and do some races uh, in, uh, in Spain. And that's how the team came about. The Irish element is obviously still very strong. I mean, I don't know what the... Would it, is it about 50% Irish riders, something like that? It's obviously a big element of it, but it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all, is it? Well, the Irish element was... Uh, uh, was the reason we started the Continental team because we felt that there was a need there for a Continental team to look after young, uh, talented Irish riders coming through, take them for one, two, possibly three years, and then hopefully that they would be able to get the results to move on to Continental Pro and Pro Tour. Uh, so yeah, the Irish, uh, the Irish end of it, was, it was always important, and uh, it still is, and you know we always try because we are. You know, very heavily sponsored by you know uh, by Irish companies. You know, our main sponsor is Paul's Chain Reaction, which is an Irish company. Uh, so yes, uh, we really try and uh, you know turn the riders up to the next level, move them on to the next level. Unfortunately, it didn't happen for a number of years. We moved on a lot of riders, but not Irish. But I think uh, of recent we've moved on Sam Bennett and now we've moved on Ryan Mullen so that's you know been a success and we try and you know, do that with you know some more riders Irish riders in the in, in the coming years and and in that kind of the the process of, of looking at riders for the for the next year you know what is the the process is a matter of kind of like uh, digging them out or you know are people making suggestions to you well you always get the people making suggestions and you know there's always uh, Riders from an area who uh, uh, there's people there, they always push to try and get a rider into a team like a, a post chain reaction team. Um, but Kurt is at the races, he, you know, he does some races in Ireland, he does a lot of races in Europe with these younger guys, so he see, he, he see those guys. He also does you know, the under 23 races with Cycling Ireland and Cup to Nations, World Championships. So he's there and he sees all the guys, not only from Ireland but also from other countries. So he's in a perfect position you know, to look at riders and see who we, can, uh, who we can take in the team, who will suit the team. But, yeah, Irish riders, we're always looking for you know, at least four or five Irish riders in the team. If this was football, you'd, you'd be moving those guys on and you'd, you'd, you'd have half a million pounds in your pocket. Surely there should be a transfer system, yes? Well, I've said it to the UCI five years ago, plus five years ago, and... Uh, yeah, I, there's no movement. Uh, uh, you know, for the moment, it doesn't look like they're going to anything happening uh, in the near future. But I, I think for a continental team, I think for cycling, it's important that you have a good structure, continental team-wise, and that would help you know to develop riders and take them in the right way uh, and develop develop with them, work work with them. Uh, but unfortunately, yes, um, you know, there isn't a, a transfer fee. Um, but you know, with it, with our own team, you know, it's just something uh, we feel that uh, it's a service we give for Irish riders, but also for other riders that a good continental setup, and hopefully you can you know move riders along. 
cut also the ambition also to go to uh, to the next level, Continental Pro. We've been, you know, thinking about that. We've talked about it a bit with, with potential sponsors in the last two or three years, and it's always uh, it's always an objective more so for Court. Budget-wise, that's a big step up, I imagine. It's a very big step up, yeah. and unless you have, you know, the sufficient budget, because we've had discussions with potential sponsors, but yeah, the budget wasn't uh, sufficient for us to make, uh, you know, to make that move. We would prefer to stay continental at a good level, have a good continental team, to have a bad continental pro team. Thanks, Sean. All the best to the team for the season. Thank you very much. So that's Sean Kelly there from uh, Chain Reaction and Post. And uh, there were also some uh, women's teams out there, and Ian caught up with a couple of riders from Live Plantour. I hadn't realised until, uh, until now that uh, Live Plantour is effectively the female version of Giant Alpacin because Liv is a women's brand from Giant and Planter is the uh, women's version of Alpacin Shampoo. It, it's not that many uh, Pro Tour sponsors that actually do that, support a women's team, is there? No, no, there's not. I was going to say there's even fewer that have a different name for the team. That's a funny one, isn't it? You'd think a lot of them would have 300,000 odd euros, maybe slightly more than that, to run a women's programme. But hey, it's not in the rules, there's no obligation. There's no obligation to do it, no, no. But it's, it's good that the Giant Alpacin, Liv Planter, have done that because it's, it, it, it's clear that uh, that investment in women's cycling is, is paying off because you know, they are getting the attention. So Ian spoke to uh, a couple of riders, Leah Kirchman from uh, Canada and the British rider, Molly Weaver. You've met Molly, haven't you? Yeah, I met her before the British National Championships last summer. I think she'd just been second in the TT. And she'd just signed for Liv Planter. Weaver's tale is, is fantastic. She was a junior, a junior hockey player on the fringes of the England squad as a teenager. And then I think she busted her knee and moved on to cycling. And she, she tells a story about barely being able to get up the small hill in her village. And now she's rapidly progressing to well, the world tour scene. And she could be riding the Olympic road race. She's a, she's a pretty good climber. But it's a really impressive transformation. Let's take a listen to uh, Leah Kirschman and uh, Molly Weaver. Uh, this is our ninth day, tenth day. <laughs> Last count. Yeah, you start to lose track, but I think ninth day. Yeah. Uh, and the legs feeling like it's the tenth day now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think this is actually the day after the rest day. It's always you always feel worse than you think after the rest day. Molly was telling me earlier that you were a team time trial training today. How did that go? It was good. I think we were making really good progress as a team and we're getting smoother every time uh, we ride together. But it was there was definitely some good suffering and training today. People tell me, I wouldn't know because it's about 20 years since I did a team time trial, but I'm told it's one of the most painful disciplines going. Is that right? I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, something about it you can just... Uh, push yourself so much more when you're with your teammates and you don't want to let your team down so um, yeah it's all about finding your limits and that the discipline Lee, you've only just joined the team I, I did a bit of checking up on you earlier and you were in 2014 correct me if I'm wrong you were Canadian road time trial and crit champion that's a bit greedy isn't it? <laughs> any favourites out of the three uh, my favourite I'd have to pick the the road race I just I love road racing I love when races come down to sprints that kind of thing um, but but from that year I was really proud of of the time trial championship because every every year I worked so hard on improving on that weakness and then it was 
really satisfying to, to be time trial champion of Canada. I guess you were in the States, were you, with, with Optum for the last few years? Yeah. So um, this is probably going to be quite an eye-opener, but I, I think you have actually raced in Europe before, haven't you? Yeah, so I do have some experience racing here with the national team, and the last couple of years Optum has been able to come over for a few trips. So I'm not totally new and know a little bit what to expect, but I'm also really excited to get to do some new races this year, like the early classics and... Um, things like the Giro I've never ridden, so I'm quite excited for, for that. may have escaped your attention, but apparently there's an Olympics on this year. Um, any chance are you going to that, do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's really my biggest goal of the season, and it has been the last few years, and um, I think if, I, if I, I feel good right now, and if I race well in the spring with the team and um, show that I'm one of the best riders, then, then you'll see me in Rio. Let's hope so. You won't see me in Rio, we don't get invited. <laughs> Molly, you had a very interesting year last year because you were riding for Steph Wyman's Matrix team, the British team, and then in the middle of the season, out of the blue, unless it was not out of the blue, you tell me, out of the blue, um, Liv Planter said, come and ride for us. That must have been a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the first part of the season was really good, actually, with Matrix, and I did better than maybe I thought I would. Um, and yeah, halfway through the season, I went home for a bit of a bit of a rest. I was living in Belgium at the time, and I get a phone call from Steph saying that that the DS of of Liv Planter wanted to sign me, and yeah, it all happened very quickly from there. How long did you hesitate before saying yes, please? I think 0.1 seconds. Okay, give, <laughs> give or take. Yeah. Roughly, any races you did last season that were particularly memorable? We actually did all the big classics of Matrix, which was really good. The standout one was probably Flanders for me, just, just such yeah, a spectacle, such a massive event. Getting Bevelgum for the weather was also quite an experience. Um, it's just, yeah, it's worlds away from racing domestically as well, so pretty much every race you go to is, is yeah, a new experience for you. And where are you, are you based? Are you based in Holland or not? Uh, no, I actually live in Girona now, and over the winter I've been there for the whole of the training period, but... In the season, I'll split my time between Holland and Girona. Basically, in Girona, you can't go more than 100 yards without bumping into a pro cyclist. It's, it's my experience. It's pretty much it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit like that. It's, on the rides, it's, yeah, it's really nice. It's cyclists everywhere, pros everywhere. It feels like a really good um, environment for it. And You can't go to the supermarket in your pyjamas, though, because you will see someone you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, who does the best coffee in, in Girona? Uh, La Fabrica has to do the best, yeah. And it's apparently owned by a Canadian, I've learned. So. That's why it's so good. Yeah, that's why it's yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah, Amber, she's very good. And uh, they have good magazines uh, lying around in La Fabrica as well. I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah, I've seen actually there's Rouleur, which is my favourite. Oh, seen that really? That's, yeah, that's there. So my dad is very happy about that. I buy him every year, subscription for Christmas. That's not a lie, that's the truth. <laughs> that's fantastic. There'll be... Uh, that 20 euros I'll be giving you as soon as we're finished. Um, so how much longer are you here for and then where, where do you go next? Um, we've actually only got one more day left. Um, it's been a 10-day camp, so a nice length, but not too long, which is good. And then we only have yeah, a week and a half before we head to Qatar. Yeah, less than a week. Yeah. Straight into racing. So you need to practice your echelons, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've been practicing this yeah. week. We've so. done our lead out practice and it has been windy here, so it's been ideal actually. Leah, looking at your uh, Palmaras, I figure you're quite a handy sprinter, is that right? That's, yeah, that's definitely my, uh, my strength.
And what about you, Molly? What's your strength? <laughs> I consider myself an all-rounder. <laughs> um, in terms of the type of racing, I like, yeah, quite a hard course, but in more of a classic style than, you know, like the mountains of the Giro. I think maybe I haven't learned yet exactly what kind of rider I am, but, yeah, I'm, over this year, maybe I'll learn a bit more about that. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, that's Leah Kirschman and Molly Weaver talking to Ian Cleverly in Calpe. Now, in issue 60, Andy, you've written a nice piece about Fabian Cancellara. Of course, it's his last season in the pro ranks. And it, it struck me that you sort of nailed it in the first paragraph when you say that Fabian is a, is a class rider. Class is what sort of makes him stand out, really, isn't it? Well, firstly, it's kind of the fact it's his generosity of strength that he's, he's never seemed to shirk a, a turn on the front, even when that leads to his own kind of defeat sometimes. Um, it's the way he conducts himself both off the bike and on the bike. Um, I didn't really get a chance to mention it so much in the feature because there's only so much space, but he was actually a great helper to Sastre and the Schlex in their CSC years. And that is pretty rare for a champion to be winning classics, world champs, and in the middle, giving his all for three weeks in a grand tour. There's numerous things. It's very easy to lose that class. I mean, frankly, I would say Peter Sagan is a very classy bike rider, a classy man. The podium yeah, bum-pinching yeah. thing is still on my mind, but he's still young anyway. Um, whereas Cancellara, I can't, I can't imagine him pinching some woman's bum on the podium. It's, it's just not becoming. A lot of people, of course, will remember that um, a video of him descending in the Tour of 2009 stage seven I think wasn't it where he's trying to get back on the pack and it's one of those things where you after about 20 seconds you think well I'd be dead by then and then uh, a couple of yards later it's yep that's me uh, over the edge again yeah it, it's extraordinary bike handling skill it's not even that I'd be I'll be dead but I would be not nearly as fluid I'll be so tense and ragged and knees out and he just he just goes with the bike and it, it seems effortless which is uh, very envy-inducing, I think. <laughs> Although we have to remember, of course, that um, in the Olympic road race, he did manage to uh, stack it in Richmond Park. There's something ironic about uh, one of the greatest bike handlers in the peloton coming to grief on a relatively simple roundabout. I think they call it Cancellara Corner now. Yeah, it's the one up by Richmond Gate, if uh, anyone's visiting Richmond Park and doesn't know that. That's the other thing about class. Like, he's had his fair share of falls and bad luck, but he's always been very consistent. He always seems to bounce back. And if he's had a, a bad season, which is never that bad of him anyway in the whole scheme of things, he will then win a big race the next year, which is why his last season, after lots of misfortune last season, um, his final one, he's probably going to win something big, you'd think. Yeah, when I spoke to him, he was saying that he was you know, really looking forward to this season because every, uh, every race was going to be his last attempt at that race so he may as well go for it do you think he's realistically he's got some he's got some big targets yeah he seems to be doing something a little bit different by entering the Giro of, of the classics firstly to win there and get the Mali Rosa as for uh, as for the Cobble classics I guess for those races you've always got to race them like it'll be the last time they're they're so cut and thrust so fiercely fought that I don't think there'll be that much of a difference I think it'll be 35 by the time they roll around. It'll be very interesting to see if age has blunted him significantly, and if so, how much. Because we've seen, I think the last two monuments he won were Roubaix 2014 and Flanders 2013. 
And both of those were quite quite different, more tactical. I think he was outfoxing other riders in a breakaway sprint finish. It's going to be a really interesting uh, season to watch, actually, isn't it? So um, the competition, Andy, yes. in, in Ian's absence, have you got the uh, details of the competition from 59 and, uh, and for this edition? Yes. Well, firstly, the question in the 59 podcast, um, it came from Martin Proctor's uh, article about the Ruler Awards at the Classic. And the question was, what won one day race of the year? The answer was Paris-Roubaix. Yep. And the winner is... Sean Daly, who receives a Sean Kelly signed copy of issue 57, which had King Kelly as one of the main features. And very appropriate for Paris-Roubaix as well. Indeed. Well done, Sean. The question for this podcast then, uh, relating to the fantastic Theatre of Pain feature written by Paul Maunder and photographed by Marshall Kappel. What year did the Meur de Wy first appear in the route of La Flèche Wallonne? Okay, the uh, year the Murder Hui uh, first appeared in the Flesh Wallon. The prize is one of our icon T-shirts, so you can choose between a Maltini one, a Fimer one, or a Brooklyn-inspired one. Great, and how do people enter? To enter, you just see the podcast page on ruler.cc and place your answer there. Okay, that's it from this podcast. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ian Parkinson. Thanks to Andy McGrath. Go safe out there, and we'll uh, talk next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 